Romans chapter 11. Now let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you today that we can know that your eye is on the sparrow and we know that you therefore care for us. And we thank you, Father God, for uh, the wonderful comfort it is to know that we have a God who loves us and cares for us. And uh, we thank you, Father, for uh, the relationship that we can have with you because of Jesus Christ. And we do pray that, Lord, you bless now this day as we come together. Lord, as we take your word, that we would understand it, that, Lord God, that we would uh, be able to apply it to our lives, that, Lord, we would glean from your word this day that which you would have for us to understand and learn. That, Lord God, that we might leave this place having known that we've been in your presence, having known that you've spoken to us through your word. And guide me now, Father, I pray. Give me wisdom from on high. May I only say that which you'd have me to say and pray that you'd get all the praise and all the glory. For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, for centuries, people have been puzzled by the nation of Israel. For instance, the Roman government recognized the Jewish religion, but still called the nation Sector Nefaria, or the nefarious sect. The Greek historian Arnold Tombe classified Israel as a fossil civilization and did not know what to do with them. For some reason, the nation did not fit into its historical theories. There are those even today who would tell us that Israel as a nation has no future. They would claim that uh, the church has replaced the nation of Israel, and Israel therefore is, uh, not, doesn't have any part in God's future scheme. Well, the Apostle Paul takes Romans chapter 11, he devotes all of Romans chapter 11, to presenting proof that God has not finished with Israel, that God is not through with his nation. He presents evidence that there is a literal future for a literal nation, and that nation is Israel. To do this, he calls several witnesses to prove that there will always be an Israel. And today we're going to start considering those witnesses. First of all, the first of those witnesses is Paul himself. Look in verse 1. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. In response to his question that he's asked, there in verse 1, I say then, hath God cast away his, his, his people? Where he responds, God forbid, in no way, that question should not even have been asked. He then proceeds to present the evidence that proves that statement to be true, and the first of them is himself. He says, just look at me. If God is finished with Israel, then why am I saved? I mean, God did not cast him away, and he was a Jew, so God has not finished saving Jews, because Paul is an example of that. He explains that he had a great Jewish pedigree. So obviously, God still wanted to save his people from their sins. Verse 1 tells us that he was an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. We also know from Philippians chapter 3 and what we read in Acts chapter 22 that he was a Pharisee who studied under the famous Jewish teacher, Jewish rabbi Gamaliel. So there was no doubt about the credentials of the Apostle Paul as to being an Israelite. And so what he says here in verse 1 is this, 
If anyone thinks that Paul himself is teaching that when God sent his son to the world to secure man's salvation, that meant the Jew, that no Jew was ever to be saved. If anyone thinks that God is finished with Israel and he's only interested in saving Gentiles, then that simply is not true. And the implication here is that because God had not rejected Paul, and remember Paul described himself as being a pretty wicked sort of character, you know, he had persecuted the church, he'd killed people for the cause of God, he had, he had done terrible things in the name of God. And so the implication here is if God did not reject the Apostle Paul, then no one could, could claim they had rejected the entire nation of Israel. Paul himself is the first witness to demonstrate that God has not finished with Israel, that there will always be in Israel because he's living proof of Israel's future, of Israel's future restoration and Israel's future salvation. You know, in a similar way, you and I are living proof that God still loves and saves sinners. God is still in the soul-saving business today. We still live in an era where God wants to save souls. And God will save anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. And we're living proof of that. Each and every one of us here today who know Jesus Christ as Savior, we are living, breathing testimonies to the saving grace of Almighty God. And as Paul himself was used of God to reach, reach Israel, reach the Jews. Remember, he was the apostle of the Gentiles, but along his way he got the privilege of leading many a Jew to Christ. As God used Paul as an illustration, testimony, of what God can do for Jews in saving the Jews, we too should be living testimonies of the saving grace of God. As you and I go about our daily uh, business, as you and I meet our friends, meet our workmates, meet our schoolmates, you and I need to be living, breathing testimonies of the grace of God, that God is still in the soul-saving business. You know, the world is watching us, and therefore we need to be living examples of what Christ can do for sinners, just like the Apostle Paul was for the nation of Israel. The second witness that the Apostle calls here is God's foreknowledge. Look at verse 2. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What? You not what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel. The first part of that verse. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. He emphatically repeats what he said in verse 1. In case the readers of the Jewish readers that he wanted to reach here in Romans chapter 11, in case they hadn't understood what he'd said in verse 1, which was, Pretty categorical, that God cast away his people, God forbid. He repeats it now, he says, God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. He makes it clear. And it could not be any clearer. You know, therefore it's difficult to understand, isn't it, why the amillennialists and the postmillennialists and others think that God is finished with Israel. When it states so clearly... So categorically, so, uh, uh, and he repeats it twice, that God hasn't cast them away. Verse 1, hath God cast away his people? No way. 
Verse 2, God had not cast away his people which he foreknew. So I find it hard, I find it difficult to accept and understand how certain groups of believers can actually believe that God's finished with Israel. Romans 11 is the, is the classic passage on the proof that God has a purpose, a plan, a future plan for Israel. And here he says, God has not cast away his people which he foreknew. Although we tend to think of foreknowledge as knowing something before it happens, the biblical concept of foreknowledge is more than that. It doesn't just mean knowing something before it happens, but it carries the idea of to determine something. Now, if you're on Wednesday night, you know pastor spoke on this on Wednesday night, so uh, I don't want to repeat everything he said, but I do want to make it clear what this matter of foreknowledge is. Perhaps the best way to define foreknowledge is this way. A determined predetermination to love. A predetermination to love. Another way to translate this foreknowledge is to translate it as foreordained. In fact, that's the way it's translated in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. The same Greek word which is translated foreknowledge here in Romans chapter 11 is translated foreordained in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world was manifest in these last times for you. If you go back to verse 18, it says, For so much we know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained, God foreplanned foreordained that Christ would come and shed his blood. He foreordained this before the foundation of the world. But Christ wasn't manifested until these last times for you. This was God's preordained plan. God preordained, he pre-purposed before the world began that he would send his son to die and shed his precious blood that we might be saved. That was God's predetermined plan. That was his foreordained plan. That was his foreknowledge. So the idea of foreknowledge or foreordain, the idea is that that's conveyed here is that God made a predetermination regarding Israel. And God in eternity past predetermined to love his own people and to bless them with his covenants and to fulfill his covenants with his people. This was God's preordained plan, okay? So in other words... God made a decision in eternity past, what he was going to do for Israel, irrespective of what Israel does. Irrespective of how they behave. Irrespective of anything else. It's not that God looked down the corridors of time, saw how Israel would behave, and then God made a determination on that. God determined in eternity past that he would choose a nation, Israel, to be his witness and testimony in this world, and that he would bless them with the covenants, the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants in particular, these unconditional covenants, he would protect them, love them, and provide for them. He would use them for his glory. He determined that in the past. He predetermined to love his own people and bless them with his covenants. Now, it doesn't mean that he knew about them. Because there's nothing special about that. Because God knows about all nations. God is 
omnip omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. God knows all those things. Nothing, nothing catches God by surprise. He knows all nations, so this is not anything special. If, this, if they, all this word means is that God knew about Israel, it doesn't make anything special. This is more than that. This is a predetermination. In fact, the, full, the word foreknow is not merely a foreseeing a thing, but implies previous purpose or plan. Go back to Romans 8, please. Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, he did also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that, we might, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now here we have that he foreknew, and he predetermined. God's preordained predetermination is this, that you and I will be conformed to the image of his Son. All those who are saved will be conformed to the image of his Son. Okay, what's he saying? He's saying that God in eternity past foreordained this predetermination predestination that you and I would be conformed to the image of the Son not dependent on what you and I do not dependent on how you and I live not dependent on whether we obey him or don't obey him once we're saved God said in eternity past all those who are saved I predetermined for them I foreordained for them that they will be a, the predetermination for them will be that they will be conformed to the image of my Son, and that will happen at glorification. That's God's predetermined plan for you and me. And so the meaning of the passage here simply is this God in eternity past had a plan and a purpose for his people Israel. And because God always is faithful to carry out his purposes, Therefore, it's not possible that God has rejected or cast away his people Israel forever. The purposes of God are sure. The purposes of God are absolute. What God has decreed in eternity past must come to pass in history. Because that's the character of God at stake. If what God decreed does not come to pass, then God is not God. God preordained, he purposed something for Israel. And therefore, he will never reject Israel and cast off Israel forever. The purpose of God are always sure. He must be true to his purposes. And if he casts away his people... It means God has contradicted himself. It means that God is going back upon his own purpose. And you know, such a thing is unthinkable. Go with me to Proverbs 19, please. Proverbs 19. And verse 21. It says, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. The counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. The purposes of God are always sure. And therefore, just because most of Israel has rejected God, 
it doesn't mean that God has finished with Israel. Nor for that matter does it mean that God won't save individual Jews during the church age, because he will. And the same is true for you and I. Just because most of mankind rejects Christ's offer of salvation, just because most of mankind reject Christ, doesn't mean that God's purposes for all of mankind, which is that he would, he's not willing that any should perish, that that is null and void. God made a predetermination of eternity past that he would save all those who believe in Jesus Christ. He promised, he decreed in eternity past. He said, I promise that everyone who trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior, I will save them. In fact, I choose to save all who will believe in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 1. He made that declaration of eternity past. And the reason it is because he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. And just because not everybody's saved doesn't mean that God is not true to his purpose and his plan. God always desires for souls to be saved. And God will always save those who call upon his name. Because his purposes are sure. You and I can go forth with confidence knowing this. That anybody that you and I have the privilege of witnessing to, and anybody you and I work with, and anybody you and I live next door to, and anybody you and I know, we can go forth with this confidence if they don't know the Savior that God wants them saved. And we can have this confidence that God will save them if you'll call upon their name. Nobody that you and I know, nobody that we meet, nobody that we talk to, do we have to worry about whether God will save them? God will save them. If they want to be saved, he will save them. That's God's preordained plan. That's his purpose. And so you and I can go forth with confidence, knowing that nobody that you and I speak to who wants to be saved won't be saved. Because whosoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's a glorious, confident truth. And it's based upon his purpose. And Israel still illustrates this for us. Here is a nation that's rejected their God. A nation that even today is in unbelief. They've rejected their Messiah. But God's purpose for them has never changed. He wants all Israel to be saved. Paul is a classic illustration of that. He was a Jew, but God saved him. And that's dependent, and the foundation of that is found in the foreknowledge of God. God preordained, he predetermined a plan and a purpose for Israel, and it will come to pass. There is a day coming when the 70th week of Daniel's 70 weeks will be fulfilled, the tribulation period, at which time the nation of Israel will be brought to their knees, and they'll cry out to God, and they'll look upon their Messiah, whom they have pierced, and they'll believe in him. And they'll be entered into the millennial kingdom. And then God will fulfill his promises, his covenants to his people. And they shall possess the land as he promised Abraham some 4,000 years ago. We have a glorious God who keeps his purposes 
and his plans. The third witness is Elijah's testimony. Elijah's testimony, the rest of verse 2 down to verse 6. It says in verse 2, What ye not, what the scripture saith, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, you know, Paul says, look not only at my life, don't look just at the foreknowledge of God, but check out history. Have a look at what God has done in the past. He introduces this matter by saying, what ye not, what ye not, what the scripture saith. The word phrase, what ye not, means, are you not aware? Or do you not understand what the scripture says? And here once again, the Apostle Paul calls upon the knowledge of his readers to explain God's truth. See, he's anxious to show them that he's not presenting to them his own ideas. This is not something that the Apostle Paul's dreamt up. To answer the question, hath God cast away his people, God forbid, and to say God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew, the Apostle says, this is not my idea. This is not something that came out of my imagination. This is what God's word says. He always wants them to see and he always wants them to know that what he is teaching, that what he is saying is based upon the authority of the word of God. And he illustrates that for us here in chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, where he says, remember Elijah. What? No, you know what the scripture saith of Elias, Elias or Elijah. You know what happened to Elijah? Elijah thought that he alone worshipped the true God. Look in verse 3. This is what Elijah said, uh, end of verse 2. How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Even though... Elijah thought that he was alone, that he alone worshipped the true and living God. Elijah cried in uh, 1 Kings 19 verse 13, uh, out of the Lord, he, he made this statement, I, even I am left, he says. And so Paul here tells us to remember Elijah. You know, after the great victory of taking uh, on the 400 prophets of Baal, you remember the story, how he defeated the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. How that, uh, you know, they sacrificed their animals and they couldn't call down fire from heaven. And then Elijah uh, demonstrated the power of God. He poured water over the altar and then called down fire from heaven. And God answered his prayer and defeated the 400 prophets of Baal. Following that great victory over the prophets of Baal, Israel as a nation, with Jezebel as their leader, had gone and chased after Baal once again. And the nation was in great apostasy. And under pressure, Elijah caved in when Jezebel threatened him. And the story in 1 Kings 19 is that he runs from fierce Jezebel, doesn't fear the 400 prophets of Baal, but fears Jezebel, and he runs from her, and he hides in a cave. And God asks Elijah in 1 Kings 19.13, What doest thou here, Elijah? Why in the world? Are you in this cave? Why are you hiding? And the reason is because Elijah thought he was alone in worshiping the true and living God. That's Romans 11, 2 and 3. 
And he says, How he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Elijah cried out, No one else is serving you, Lord. I'm on my own. It's only me. And God answers Elijah's complaints in Romans 11.4. What saith the answer of God, this is a quote from 1 Kings, what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. God answers him by telling him that he's not alone. That there is a remnant the nation with its princes, its priests, and its people had rejected their God. But there was a remnant, a small group, 7,000 men, who refused to bend the knee to Baal. You know, it reminds us here that the minority, or the righteous, rather, were in the minority, and they always are in the minority. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14? Let's turn there. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. It says, Enter ye at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go therein. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. You know, wide is the gate and broad is the way, and many there be that find it. It's the same today within professing, the professing church. The righteous are in the minority. As the Lord explains there in Matthew chapter 7, tares have been sown among the wheat. And the wheat can hardly be seen for the tares in today's Christendom. And Jesus said there were many at the judgments who will say, Lord, Lord, have we not done these things in thy name? But he will confess, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, in Matthew 7, 22. The righteous were in the minority in Elijah's day. The righteous were in minority in Paul's day. And the righteous were in minority today. It's a fact. And all of us from time to time, because of the state of Christianity, can get like Elijah. You know, we can look at it and we can see the large churches of the, those who are teaching false doctrine and the success of unscriptural Christian movements around the world. And we realize that we're in the minority and then we can despair. We can begin to wonder if we are the ones who are wrong because there's so few of us. As one commentator said at school, at work, even if there are other Christians, because of their slack standards, because of their wrong doctrines, we feel like Elijah when he said, I am left alone and they seek my life. We can feel at times like we're all on our own. We can feel like we're the bad guy, if you like, because, you know, we're the ones who have standards and because we're the ones who believe the Bible, because we're the ones who don't go along with compromise or sin, and we can feel like we're alone. Well, the Lord encouraged Elijah, telling him that around Israel there was a faithful few, a remnant. 
And we can be encouraged today because God always has his faithful few. And we might not be in the, in the majority, but God's faithful few are never in the majority. Well, things were gloomy in Israel in Elijah's day, and they were gloomy in Paul's day too. Look in verse 5. Even so then at this present time also there's a remnant according to the election of grace. There was a remnant in Elijah's day, there was a remnant in Paul's day, and there's a remnant today. Now, Despite the fact that Israel had crucified its Messiah, persecuted the apostles, scattered the church, there was among them in Paul's day, there was among the tares some wheat. Now at the time when the apostle Paul writes Romans chapter 11, there was a remnant, a small group compared to the millions of, in the nation of Israel, but there was a small group of born-again believers. And notice what it says in verse 5. It says, even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. This remnant was according to the election of grace. Now notice it doesn't say the election of race. It doesn't say election of R-A-C-E, race. It says election of grace, G-R-A-C-E. Because that, the election of race, being part of Israel, didn't save anyone. It's only the election of grace that could bring salvation. And there's only one condition that applies if you want to receive the election of grace, and that's faith. If you want to be chosen to receive God's grace, and by the way, election of grace simply means chosen to receive God's grace. The word elect means chosen. Grace is what you and I receive, and we've been chosen to receive God's grace. And there's only one condition. If you and I want to receive God's grace, if we want to be chosen to receive God's grace, there's only one condition. And that is that God will only choose to elect Choose to save those who fulfill the one condition of faith. Faith in Christ. Go back to Romans chapter 4, please. Romans 4. And verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is canon for righteousness. Then drop down to verse 16 in the same chapter. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of, faith, of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. It is by faith that we receive grace. If we want to be chosen to be the recipients of grace, the only way to get that is by faith. It's not faith plus being a Jew. It's not faith plus being baptized. It's not faith plus being circumcised. It's not faith plus keeping the Sabbath. Salvation is always by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is never by works. For by grace you say through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. 
For by grace you say through faith. Paul explains why in verse 6. He says, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be a works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You see, it's because if it be of works, then it can be no more of grace. It's not grace. If salvation is of grace, then there's no work, there's no effort that you and I can put into it to receive it. If salvation is grace, it has to be a free gift. For grace is God's unmerited favor to you and I. It's you and I receiving that which we don't deserve. And if you and I work for that grace, then we deserve grace. Work equals reward. Therefore, it becomes not grace. Grace is you and I receiving something that you and I don't deserve. And if salvation is of works, then it cannot be of grace. The two are diametrically opposed. It's all of grace. And the only means of obtaining that grace is by faith, because only by faith can we obtain it without works. See, God has chosen his purpose, decree in eternity past. He chose to save all who would believe in Christ. And he decreed that all those that believe in Christ would be the recipients of grace. He chose to give grace to all who believe in Christ. That's God's eternal purpose. That's a great truth. God's eternal purpose, as God sat before he created the world, before ever you and I were created, God sat in eternity past, not dependent upon what you and I do, in eternity past, God decreed and he said, I purpose to give grace to all who believe in Christ. I choose to give grace to all who believe in Christ. In fact, I choose all who believe in Christ to be recipients of grace. And the only condition for receiving God's grace is faith. Nothing else. And those who believe in Christ have been chosen, I said, to receive God's grace. Now, some in Israel had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. People like Paul, people like Peter, people like James and John. The nation of the whole had rejected Christ, but not a remnant within it. There were the Annas, the Simeons, the Marys, the Elizabeths, who had believed. And the truth is, God had not cast away these believing ones. That's Paul's point here. God has not cast away his believing ones. He never will. God has not finished with Israel. Sure, today he is operating through the church, but God still will save Jews. Just as much as he'll save Gentiles. God has a remnant within 
the Jewish nation today. We all know one such man who fits that bill, David Kaufman. He's a born-again Jew. God is still saving his remnant. God's purpose is sure. And ultimately, God will fulfill his, all his purposes to the nation as a whole in the tribulation and ultimately in the millennial kingdom because God's purposes are sure. God received them, saved them, and gave them his righteousness as individuals even though he'd set his nation aside. But because of his purpose and plan, God is still saving individuals today. Today, for the most part, mankind has rejected God's gift of grace. But God will never cast away those who receive his Son by faith. For you know, God must be true to his purposes. And just like God is not finished with Israel, and just like God has a remnant of his people even today, his work of salvation is not yet complete. As Paul used himself to reach Israel, you and I, because God's work of salvation is not complete, need to be used of God as living testimonies to the saving grace of God. The world is watching us, beloved. Let's be living examples of what Christ can do for sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Father God, for your grace, for your divine purpose, that you purpose the eternity past to choose to save all who will believe in Christ, choose to give grace to all who believe in Christ. We thank you, Father God, that you had a Jewish remnant in Elijah's day. We thank you that there was a Jewish remnant in Paul's day and even today. We thank you that, Father, amongst Christendom, that you have your righteous remnant too. And help us be faithful witness and testimonies for you in this day and age as we look, Father God, to the rapture. And look forward to the day when you will establish your kingdom upon earth and fulfill all your covenant promises to the nation of Israel. We thank you, Father God, that your purposes are sure. We thank you, Father God, for being the kind of God that you are. Commend your word to our hearts this morning, we pray. Bless we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.